just Atlanta in general, it's supposed to be this living symbol of the successes of the civil rights era. So Atlanta needs to prosper. And it did prosper. But one of the reasons it prospered that they didn't like to talk about so much was because of the vice and the strip clubs. Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. The Southern United States is often seen as a bastion for conservative sexual values. So when you think about something like the sexual revolution, for example, the South probably isn't the first place that comes to mind. But there's actually a very deep and rich sexual history worth exploring here, especially when you consider a city like Atlanta. Atlanta, often described as the strip club capital of America, has long been a home to sex work. And as the sex trade grew in that area, the population swelled and visitors started coming in droves. Although city officials are reluctant to acknowledge this, Atlanta's sex industry deserves at least some of the credit for the city's tremendous growth. Atlanta has also long been a home to queer nightlife, which helped it to become the center of the gay rights movement in the South. So Atlanta is a city that was built, at least in part, on what some folks call vice establishments, specifically strip clubs and gay bars. In today's show, we're going to pull back the cover on Atlanta's fascinating sexual history. We're going to explore how it became a center for sex work in the LGBTQ community in the middle of a very conservative area, as well as how these so-called vice establishments went from places people didn't want to be seen entering to the happening places to check in on social media. I am joined once again by writer and historian Martin Paget. He is the author of A Night at the Sweet Gumhead, which tells the story of Atlanta's gay revolution in the 1970s. He is also working on a new book titled The Many Passions of Michael Hardwick, which tells the story of what is arguably the most important gay rights case in history. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist with the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers 20 certification options in areas including medical sexology, kink, neurodiversity, and LGBTQIA affirmative therapy. They also offer a PhD program in clinical sexology that can be completed in two years and meets all ASEC certification requirements. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to fit your schedule. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archive workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. The Kinsey Institute's Art and Artifact Collection contains thousands of items from around the world spanning more than 2,000 years of human history. You can check out some of the items in the newly opened Kinsey Institute Gallery on the Indiana University Bloomington campus, which is open to the public from 9.30 to 4, Monday through Friday. You can also find two Kinsey Institute art exhibitions at the Wilsig Erotic Art Museum, located in the heart of South Beach in Miami, Florida. Check the show notes for more information or visit kinseyinstitute.org. Okay, Martin, let's talk about strip clubs. So Atlanta is sometimes referred to in the media as the strip club capital of the United States. It has a lot of strip clubs, including some of the most famous ones in America. Uh, One is the Claremont Lounge, a club that has been visited by numerous celebrities, from Lady Gaga to Morgan Freeman. 
So Atlanta is in the middle of Georgia, which has historically been a pretty conservative state. So how did this burgeoning sex scene develop in this seemingly unlikely place? I am blanking now because I'm thinking of Morgan Freeman doing the announcing at the Claremont Lounge. (laughs) And I think that would be hysterical. And I think he'd probably be into it too. That would be amazing. Wouldn't it be amazing? Uh, So Atlanta and Vice and strip clubs and all of that, Atlanta has this unusual place in the political terra firma. For 150, 175 years, it's been a transportation hub. It's been the focus of kind of a reborn South. And it was the hub of the civil rights movement. And that brings a social gravity to it and intellectual gravity. But day in and day out, Atlanta is also kind of a hub for sin. It's where people would come from smaller towns to come to a place where they could see the movies they wanted or go to the bars that they wanted to. And Atlanta had been one of those places where you could have an alcoholic drink and you could watch a stripper go completely nude. And that's not all that common. There are some places like Portland, I think, is one of them where you can do the same. But, you know, other places where you would expect it to be the case, like Las Vegas, it's not. You can either watch someone get fully naked or you can buy a drink. So I think that establishes a tone for a town that you know kind of got off its feet as a global city being a convention city. Come to Atlanta because we have the Cheetah and we have the Gold Club. Mind you, this is the era before Magic City became like the best known strip club, I think, in the country. You know, Cheetah mm-hmm. was the Magic City of its, of its day and, and so was the Gold Club. And the Gold Club is the... It's one of the things that got me really interested in writing about Atlanta in the first place because in the 90s, I think it was the New York Knicks had been doing some training camp in South Carolina and the owners of the Gold Club had made sure that they had companionship out of the women who worked for them at the Gold Club. And there was some credit card Michigas going on and some people went to jail and it became this big scandal and the club eventually shut down. That was one of the more notorious things, but Atlanta just had dozens of strip clubs and they were centered close to downtown near the convention near hotels or up on Cheshire Bridge Road near some of the gay nightclubs. Uh, Even back in the 70s, there were massage parlors and health spas and saunas and Mayor Maynard Jackson was trying to stamp it all out during his first term and a half in office, just trying to you know clean up the city's image. But even before that, when Jimmy Carter was governor, he made open statements about how these kind of clubs were becoming more common and that organized crime had moved into town because the city finally had sports franchises. So you get this idea that there's a lot of prongs to what makes that kind of environment happen. And Sports teams plus conventions plus strip clubs. It's called kind of what I've heard referred to as the sporting life. You know, guys would come to entertain themselves in districts that had all of those things available. And that's Vegas is kind of an ongoing sporting life all the time. But Atlanta has its own version too. And uh, it really has put itself on the map in a lot of ways. But that was one of the early ways. I believe it's one of the reasons that it started to boom in the 70s. Yeah. So part of the reason why Atlanta became a hub for strip clubs just had to do with the broader laws regulating them, right? So you mentioned the alcohol sales thing. So for example, in Las Vegas, you can serve alcohol in a topless club, but if it's fully nude, then you can't. And one way people try and get around the law there is you open a topless club and a fully nude club right next to each other. And, (laughs) you know, if you start looking at laws around the country, 
they're really fascinating in terms of how they regulate things, like in terms of what can and can't be shown in terms of nudity. You know, I was reading a story right before our interview about local cases in Indiana, where I live. And, you know, there was a case where there was a raid on a strip club and the officers were talking about how a thong was illegal because it showed too much butt. And, you know, it's so interesting when you start looking at state-by-state variation in laws. You know, also some states have a requirement that dancers have to be at least six feet apart from patrons at any point in time. So some clubs permit touching, some require distance. So, you know, all of that variability creates just a very different landscape. And with Atlanta having kind of looser restrictions in terms of all of that, it really set the stage for a lot of strip clubs to open and to become really popular. Now, as you were hinting at right there, this explosion of, you know, sort of these vice districts and these strip clubs may have really played a big role in the growth of Atlanta as a city. You know, back when strip clubs first started opening in Atlanta, it wasn't a particularly big city. But over the years, it's grown tremendously in terms of population and visitors and conventions. And the Atlanta airport is now the busiest in the world. So it's a major city, but part of it actually probably has to do with the growth of the strip clubs there. Yeah, we have a really interesting nexus of factors in Atlanta. And the one that you can't forget, the physical reality on the ground, is that Atlanta was this really sort of thinly populated area. You know, in 1970, it was a million people spread over 15 counties. And a lot of transportation businesses had already been there. So you get empty warehouses, sort of empty neighborhoods, and the concentric rings of suburbs that were building themselves out would leave those kind of spaces behind that were friendly, not just to strip clubs, but to queer clubs too. So that's another reason that the queer club scene in Atlanta developed quickly because real estate, there were cheap places that were big enough to do that kind of a business and the laws permitted it. Then you toss in, you know, having two hometown airlines at one point, bringing all this traffic through. And then people, you know, I think the thought process is, well, we could just stay an extra day and stop in Atlanta, go to the strip clubs, or we can have our convention there next year. But convention businesses fueled this downtown hotel boom. You know, they built the Western Peachtree Plaza. It was the tallest hotel in the Western Hemisphere when it was built. And that kind of brings more business its way. And, you know, the city leaders were very smart in the 70s about saying that the downtown Atlanta scene and just Atlanta in general, it's supposed to be this living symbol of the successes of the civil rights era. So Atlanta needs to prosper. And it did prosper. But one of the reasons it prospered that they didn't like to talk about so much was because of the vice and the strip clubs and sports betting and, you know, all the stuff that comes along with a city growing into a mature entity. Yeah. And so the role of the vice scene in helping Atlanta to grow and also in terms of maintaining it as a popular destination is something that city officials don't like to talk about. You know, I was reading an article before this where it was talking about strip clubs in the Super Bowl the last time it was in Atlanta and, you know, how they were gearing up to be super busy during that period of time. And, you know, Atlanta officials didn't want to talk at all about the adult entertainment sector. You know, when they were asked questions about it by the press, they would just say, well, Atlanta, like other big cities, has adult entertainment. We're no different from them. And, you know, they also say that they don't measure the economic impact of strip clubs or other things like this. So it's sort of like, uh, you know, they don't want to talk about it. They kind of want to look the other way. But, you know, they do benefit from having this scene there in terms of making it a destination, bringing in these conventions and and so forth. So it's a, it's a dirty secret in a way. Yeah, they don't want to try to measure it because I think it's immeasurable. You know, when 
recording artists are talking about Magic City and their songs and rapping about it. And pro athletes are going there and posting to their Instagram stories from that club. It's a moment. And those things come along. You know, not many cities can say that they've got that kind of thing. And I think Atlanta does kind of shy away from pointing to that. But it's like we all know it's there. We love having it there. It's like the Claremont Lounge you mentioned earlier. It's famous because it's sort of this anti-strip club strip club because they have dancers who might be older or might. There's one very famous dancer named Blondie who crushes beer cans between her breasts and reads her own poetry. And it's a thing and you got to be into it. But it has its own story. And I have to think that in the back of a lot of people's minds, when they go to Atlanta, they still think I'm, I'm going because I've got to go through the airport or I'm having a business meeting there. But now they recognize there's this really vivid nightlife. And it really started to erupt in the late 60s and throughout the 70s. Um, in my uh, book about the Sweet Gumhead nightclub, it was like a light switch went on. By the time that club got situated and by the time people started to associate it with drag, they just started to have this big celebrity following. And some of the performers tell me, they're like, oh, yeah, well, Burt Reynolds came into my dressing room one night and Paul Lynn was there all the time and Dolly Parton was through. And whenever anyone was through town, they made sure to go to the Atlanta drag clubs and the Atlanta nightclubs. And I'm sure they do it in other cities, too. But ours is a little different. I, I had this funny example. If you ever watch the show Cops on television in a lot of cities, you see them, they're chasing a meth dealer or it's a high speed chase or in Atlanta, it's usually like a drag queen who's stolen a credit card outside of the Kroger. It's like a different scene that you would depict because <laughs> it's that real and you can instantly identify it. For me, it's like this is the part of Atlanta's cultural context and the fact that it's been able to contribute these great things to the world and to make the sexuality of it overt and just part of our cultural fabric. I think that's an enormous benefit. You know, it's part of Atlanta's character. Yeah, and part of the appeal and why it's a destination is because that sexual culture is just different and it's more open. Like I think the Claremont Lounge now has like a boutique hotel attached to it. And you know, the Claremont Lounge is a particularly fascinating place. The first time I learned about it was I think Lady Gaga was talking about it on Jimmy Fallon's show and how she was on a date there and one of the performers was dancing to her song Poker Face and Apparently, the performer did not recognize Lady Gaga as her because she wasn't, you know, in her regular getup. And um, <laughs> it was interesting. I did actually have the opportunity to go there previously because I happened to have a sex research conference that was in town. And I'm like, I've heard so much about this place. I just have to check it out. And um, it's a body positive strip club, age positive. Like you see everything there. It's so different from your typical strip club where you might see everybody looking the same, highly manicured, same body type, all that kind of stuff. So it's just a, a totally different experience in a lot of ways. That makes me think of another tangent. So the place where I saw it on television first was on Real Housewives of Atlanta. And that's another one of those things that you cannot translate to a different city because that show, you wouldn't know it's Atlanta right away. It's just, it's young, it's brassy, they're beautiful, and they're very forward about their sexuality and they have been from the start in a way that I think the other shows have not been. And the fact that they end up at the Claremont Lounge on one episode did surprise me at all. I'm like, all right, it's part of Atlanta and this is, you know, people should see this. There's a lot of bravery in that kind of depiction of 
of women just, you know, owning their sexuality and their curiosity. And, and I like to think that that's Atlanta's version of it. And it just comes across totally authentic and as artificial as some reality shows can be. That was just happening real and the cameras were just rolling. So I pay attention to all this stuff because you know, I came from Washington, D.C. And it's a city that has a lot of transitional people living there. They might be here in four years. They might not be. And I came to Atlanta and I thought, this place is completely different. I can't put my finger on it. Why? And I, it's this social atmosphere that is behind what people think. You know, they think it's the airport. They think it's in town for a convention or, or they're not there very long. Or, and, you know, now they have a completely different set of cultural references for what it is. I remember just immersing myself in the gay clubs in the late 90s. And it's a different vibe and it's a different scene. It changed a little bit at the turn of, you know, Y2K in 2000. Our mayor then kind of hurt some of the gay nightlife, shut down some 24-hour clubs and made it more difficult for gay restaurants and bars in particular to be open on Sundays. And that changed the texture of it. And, and the you know, Atlanta was booming already. And now with nearly 6 million people, it's not quite the same place it was then. There's 6 million people there. There's going to be 8 million people if what they're saying is correct. So the city's context and its nightlife and its vice life is just constantly changing. Yeah. And it's a constant evolution everywhere. But as you mentioned, Atlanta isn't just known for strip clubs. It's known for queer nightlife and it has this really long history. And again, you know, being in the middle of a politically conservative state, it seems like an unlikely spot for a queer haven to pop up. Now, you mentioned this book you published, Night at the Sweet Gumhead, that talks a bit about that history of queer nightlife. So can you tell us a little bit more about how Atlanta became such a popular home and destination for the gay community? You know, I think one of the really important pieces of the puzzle is the fact that Atlanta became a city governed by a black majority leadership. 1974, Jackson was inaugurated. So with that comes this understanding that, you know, the lessons of the civil rights era are going to start to work their way through city functions and governance. And some of the civil rights leaders were very explicit in saying that the same civil rights that black people deserve apply to queer people. John Lewis, every year he was in office, tried to co-sponsor an Equality Act. Before then, Atlanta had started to collect the queer people from neighboring cities because it had always been a little more progressive than the rest of Georgia, and it steamrolled. Some of my friends from the book and that research say that, you know, Atlanta was always the oasis in the middle of the state of Georgia because it grew so quickly. You know, Atlanta now dwarfs the rest of the state. Like 60% of the people who live in Georgia live in Atlanta. You know, it, it got the upper hand quickly. And because it put forward this image of being this prosperous, semi-progressive place, it tended to attract a lot of queer people from nearby. You know, you might want to be far enough away from your parents where you can go out to your nightclubs of choice and have privacy doing so, but close enough to go for weekend or, or whatever else. What people sometimes forget is that if you're in living in New York or in the Northeast, there's always another big city, another 50, 100 miles away. You know, Atlanta, the next biggest city, New Orleans, you know, seven hours away by car or Miami is 10 hours away. And during the 70s and 80s, you know, Charlotte wasn't as big as it is now, obviously, although it's it and Orlando have really developed into queer hubs, too. You had your choice. You could kind of Miami or New Orleans or I'm going to stay in Atlanta or am I just going to pull up roots and go to New York or San Francisco? A lot of people chose Atlanta. And from there, as soon as it became a little more acceptable or people decided they didn't care if it was acceptable or not to go out to gay nightclubs, 
the number of gay nightclubs in Atlanta just boomed. Went from three or four in 1970 to 14 or 15, three years later. Yeah, that's pretty massive growth. And, you know, as you were talking about this, I couldn't help but think back to our previous discussion on sodomy laws. So while this gay scene was growing and expanding in Atlanta, Georgia still had sodomy laws on the books. And in fact, they were enforceable until 1998 when the Georgia Supreme Court struck them down. But the growing queer scene here created some power for the community by consolidating where people were, which led to political organizing. So can you tell us a little bit about how that growing nightlife scene contributed to the gay rights movement in the area? Yeah, number one, it's a big economic driver. There have been events in the past, you know, Georgia used to have the, uh, Atlanta used to have raft race, and it was a big party weekend for hundreds of thousands of people to come to town and float down the Chattahoochee River, and it turned out to be a big tourist event. And weirdly, it had been a kind of a straight local tourist thing during the 70s, and it got disbanded because liability got to be too much. Then the queer crowd grabbed it and kept doing it, and it became one of those occurrences that would bring more people to town as tourists just like pride would do, just like black pride would do. So I think it didn't take very long for city leaders to understand that queer people coming to Atlanta filled hotel rooms, got them on Delta planes, got them on Eastern airline planes at the time, and got them to understand Atlanta in a different way. And it has taken time for mayors to be more outright in promoting queer causes. You know, mayor, mayor Jackson got tripped up when he was first mayor about announcing Gay Pride Day. Andrew Young wouldn't do it his first year in office. But after that, it was just kind of pro forma, acknowledging the gay community and promoting the events. I mean, you know, our last mayor, Keisha Lance Bottoms, she was marching in a pride parade and just having a great time doing it too. And, you know, our Mayor Dickens is equally forthcoming about pride now and, and about the city it being a vital part of the city's life. So it could have happened to Birmingham. It could have happened to Charlotte. It could have happened to Nashville earlier. But Atlanta just started happening sooner and it boomed because of it. Georgia is fortunate to have Atlanta inside of it because it has helped the state position itself sort of at the vanguard of these southern states. I don't think we're in the same cultural conversation that Arkansas is. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. Georgia is a purple state now. I don't think you can say that about any of our neighbors. Yeah, it is definitely unique in terms of how it is politically situated in the South. Now, strip clubs and gay clubs, especially in the 60s and 70s, when they were first proliferating, would have been considered part of this underground vice scene. You know, they, they were places that you wouldn't want to be seen entering because of what other people might think. But now they've become kind of like the cool places to be. You know, people are checking in, posting about it on social media. So things have changed a lot. And part of it has to do with broader societal changes. But it's also part because when people visit sex-positive establishments, it can change them. You know, it can show them another way to be to live, you know, and I can think about that through the lens of my own experience, you know, back when I was in college, I was dating a guy who took me to my first gay bar. Actually, I was able to sneak in underage. And that was my first time ever being in an environment where there were all of these people that were like me. And, you know, for one thing, it showed me that there's a lot of us out there, um, but it also gave me the opportunity to connect with other people, to learn about their stories and other ways of living. Like you could be out, like that was the thing, you know? And so it, for me, it was a really transformational 
experience to be able to visit an establishment like that. So, you know, in a way, visiting a so-called vice establishment can also be a virtue. So what are your thoughts on that? I'm 100% a believer that, you know, representation and visibility starts at the community level. One of the things that the performers at the Sweet Gum Head tell me all the time is not just celebrities coming in, but you would get these women who would bring their husbands in and the husbands have a great time or just straight people wandering in. For some reason, this bar is known for having a good pool table upstairs and pinball machine, you know, just almost a layer of clubhouse atmosphere about it. And the fact that it's a bunch of declared cis gay men wearing women's clothes and performing on stage, you know, there are certainly some trans women in, in, in the performing cast and all that. It just it created this wild atmosphere. And one person in particular, uh, Gil Robison, local political figure at the time too, he said, you know, the thing about Ben is that everyone just kind of hung out in the same places. We weren't as separated into communities within communities at that point. So that has an effect too. Not only does it show straight people how to interact with queer people, it shows queer people all, all the different things that compose queer. When I see something like uh, Esquire magazine thinks that Mary's, this queer bar in East Atlanta, is one of the best bars in the country, more of that. You know, let, let's make it sure this is a queer space and that's who they celebrate, but everyone's welcome. And it just happens to be this great bar that, you know, serves great drinks and has a fun crowd to go to. So all those things give hope. And uh, I feel like, you know, we've gone through mobile apps that have diminished in-person community because it's just more convenient to meet somebody online. And then COVID diminishes the in-person experience altogether. And I hope other people don't have the feeling that I do. It's like some, at some level, in-person community, it just got more exhausting after COVID, like finding the places that still existed and hoping the same people were there and they weren't, of course. But we need those physical places. You know, we need to create those communities in real life as well as online. Yeah, I completely agree with that. There's no replacement for the in-person community. Now, I know we're running short on time, but I wanted to ask you one more question. So, you know, Atlanta has this big nightlife scene, strip clubs, all these other kinds of fun vice establishments, and you had the opportunity to live there for a while. So can you tell us your favorite nightlife story or experience that you had living in Atlanta? I lived there for 25 years, just about exactly 25 years. I moved there January of 97, and we left early January of a couple of years ago. And I think my favorite thing is what I wrote in the introduction to my book, A Night at the Sweet Gum Head. I, one of my first trips to Atlanta, I was there for business, and I would go there often, and I just decided I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to a gay bar and deal with the consequences later. And I opened the door to this gay bar. It was uh, Hoedowns on Cheshire Bridge Road. It was a country bar. And one of my favorite songs was playing. And it's just one of those moments you open the door and you know people look at you. And some are dancing and some are socializing. And you just feel like something clicks. And it clicked for me. And I heard almost the same thing word for word when I inter interviewed Leslie Jordan a few years ago. He said, you know, it was such a relief to go in my first gay bar and have people usher me in just to see that this is all normal and this is where I belong and this is where I want people to know that I belong. It's funny, it's my earliest memory of Atlanta and it's the strongest one still. 
Yeah, it's kind of like my story of the first bar that I went to. Mine was in Erie, Pennsylvania. Probably wasn't nearly as exciting as anywhere you could go in Atlanta. But, you know, they exist in a lot of places that you might not expect them to, or at least they did historically. I know that a lot of uh, queer spaces have closed in recent years, but I think there is a trend for them coming back and hopefully we'll see more of them in the future. Yeah, I feel like people are definitely out and resuming their lives, no matter how they feel about COVID and and interacting with people politically now that maybe have revealed themselves differently during COVID. That's the to me the really fascinating thing. Going to meet people and you know some people are masking, some people are not, and then you realize other political things about people you're friendly with, and it's like we got to find some place to be a community and not be divided. And I hope those are the places where that happens. Yeah, so true. Well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Marty. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and also get a copy of your book? Yes. My website is martinpaget.com. My book, A Night at the Sweet Gumhead, is available all online booksellers. And uh, if you're in Atlanta, Poseman Books and Acapella Books in particular have been great helps, as has Karis Books, a queer-owned bookstore for decades. And my next book, hopefully comes out at the end of next year. It's called The Many Passions of Michael Hardwick. And we're very much looking forward to that. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Bye.